Good morning. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. This is what I believe to be the most important chapter in the Hebrew Scriptures. And there's no way to do it justice. We'll do our best. But I invite you, I encourage you to read and reread and meditate on it this week and pray over it and think about it and consider, again, this overwhelming plan of God that was set in motion even before the foundations of the earth. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. It's an interesting phrase in the Bible, a very significant phrase we see many times in the Hebrew, achar hadabarim. In the Greek language of the New Testament, metatauta. After these things. Revelation chapter four, verse one. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, John writes, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Revelation 15, verse five. After these things, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Revelation 19, verse one, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God after these things. It's a phrase that advances the narrative in the Bible. It progresses to and even provokes, if you will, the next event. It implies everything that needs to be done leading up to this very moment, has been done. Genesis 22, verse one, now it came about after these things. After these things. So we need to ask the question, after what things? Well, after Abraham's calling to leave Ur, his father's house, his relatives, and go to the land that God would show him. After Abraham goes too far, keeps going through the land and ends up down in Egypt, lies about his wife Sarai, saying, you're my sister. It's after Abraham's or Abram's rescue of Lot and the mysterious meeting he had with Melchizedek after these things. After the fearful cutting of covenant by God before him, as Abraham slept fitfully and darkness came over him and, and the Lord passed through the covenant sacrifice. After the rendezvous with Hagar and the brand new family mess. After booting her out, taking her back, the birth of Ishmael, the foolish assumption that God would just make use of their plan after these things. <laughs> and then came a name change to Abraham 
And, obey, and Abraham's obedience to the covenant of circumcision, oh, after these things. And, and then Abraham saw Sodom smoldering like a furnace. He left Hebron, seems to have broken fellowship as he replayed that old deception again, she's my sister. Maybe, perhaps, as we talked about, due to deep disappointment over prayers seemingly unanswered. But, but then came laughter in the birth of Isaac and Isaac's circumcision and Isaac's weaning and the protection of the covenant child as Hagar and Ishmael are finally cast out after these things. After he became a friend of God, coming to know him as El Elyon, El Roy, El Shaddai, El Olam. After seven revelations, three altars, 50 years, and a lifetime of sojourning successes and foot-falling failures after these things. You see, faith comes to you in instantly, and it takes a lifetime. To believe in Jesus, to receive him as Lord and Savior, happens in a moment when the, the heart finally lights up, finally turns on, you finally say, yes, I believe, faith. But it takes a lifetime to be developed and to be nurtured and to be grown after these things. You see, from Genesis 12 through Genesis 21, what we get is God working on a man, bringing him to this decisive moment you could say a final test. A final that Abraham now is facing and it's a final that I do not believe he would have passed if it weren't offered after these things. Abraham had to go through all of these things. By the way, so do you. Why are you letting this happen to me, God? How could you do this to me, Lord? Why is life so difficult, Father? After these things you will know. After these things, you will have been prepared. Faith came, but faith is being developed to bring you, to bring me to that point after these things. Abraham's faith had to be formed. It had to be fashioned, had to be fitted. It had to be fortified. It needed shaping and strengthening and securing. For what? For this. For this moment in his life, the most significant event in Abraham's long, so far, about 133 year life. And it's the most significant prophetic picture ever drawn before or since the most, of the most significant sacrifice of a son in the history of the world. The picture is painted here. The reality would come later. It came about after these things, that God tested Abraham. Wait, there's a test? <laughs> you didn't tell us the pop quiz? Does God test? He's testing here. Oh, God doesn't test. I know there's a verse somewhere. We gotta find the verse. James chapter one, verse 13, let me help you. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And you might say, well, but that's different. That's tempting. This is testing. Does God test? Well, the thing is, 
The Hebrew only has one word for tempt or test. It's the same word. So either you're being tempted or tested. We have two words. It's just one. It's the word nisa, tempt or test, entice or prove. It's, it's the same singular word. Same thing in the Greek. The Greek only has one word for it, pyrazo, to tempt or to test. Jesus, Matthew chapter four, verse one, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Can Jesus be tempted? Well, let's say he was tested. Whew. Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. But let's say tested. Could Jesus be tempted? Does God tempt? So people debate this. Was Jesus capable of sin? I mean, he had to be capable of sin if he could be tempted. And if the Holy Spirit led him up to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, then is God in league with the tempter? Does God tempt? Does God test? Is it really all the same thing? Listen, the outcome reveals the intention. Now, that's not to say that the end justifies the means. When understanding the use of the word in the Hebrew or in the Greek, tempt or test, the outcome reveals for us the intention. And that is to say that Satan always tempts. He tempts that we might fall into failure. God does not tempt that you might fall into failure. He tests so that we might stand in confidence. That's always the intention of the Lord. The intention of the enemy, that you would fall. The intention of the Lord, that you, that I would stand. The intention of temptation is always to lure the heart into sin. The intention of a test is to prove that the heart is already strong. And this is what God does. God will never tempt to cause sin. What he does, listen, what he does is test when he's certain that you will pass. I like that because that's a lot like Monroe's driving school. <laughs> you pay for the sessions, they take you driving and their guarantee is we're gonna take you all the way through this, then we're gonna give you the driving test and you will pass. Unless you do something stupid, you know. But the idea is rather than, you've all had the teacher, the professor, whose whole intention was to see you fail. And you knew when that scabby guy came in the first day of class, you knew I'm going down. But then there was the teacher, the professor who came along and would bring the test when they knew that you would do well, building on your understanding, building on your learning. Back to Jesus, Satan tempted him to fall. Yes, Satan brought temptation, but God allowed the test because he knew Jesus would pass. No question that there would be a perfect score that would prove him sinless, not to Jesus, not to God, but to you and to me. Jesus went through the test that we might see, that we might have confidence in him so that John the Baptist could one day say, John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Actually, he said that before the temptation, didn't he? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus was tested, proving that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only a proven, sinless person could do what Jesus did. So he was tested. 
God knowing he would pass. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Jesus was tempted by the devil in hopes that he would sin, but he was tested by God who knew he would not. And that's how it works with you and with me. There will be temptations that come because Satan is after you, he's gunning for me, he wants to undermine faith, he wants to shatter belief, he wants me to fall into sin, but God, God will only test to strengthen and prove and show you where your heart is with him. And that's what's happening here is God is testing Abraham, proving his faith, revealing the result of a lifetime of preparation, this is Abraham's final. And I'm telling you, the Lord would not have given it to him 10 years prior or 30 years earlier. It was only now when he is ready, when he has been prepared, and God brings this test. By the way, the Lord didn't test him so that the Lord might know. He tested him so that Abraham would know. And Abraham needed to be assured because this is a man who may yet still question his faithfulness. But not after these things. Bible says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation or test has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able but with the temptation, with the test will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. That's God's desire, that's his intention, that's his plan. He will never offer a test before you can pass but he will bring the test. He will allow the test. He will see you through the test that you might come out the other side stronger and more assured that you truly do believe in him. And Abraham does. Abraham's faith endures. He climbs now to the very highest height of his entire sojourn, which is why, watch this, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. You ever wonder about that phrase? Seems kind of obvious. Abraham, here I am. I know, that's why I called you. <laughs> why this response? Abraham is, know this, he's quick to answer. He's not skulking around. He's not hiding out. He, he's immediate. Abraham, here I am. As if he's expectant. As if he's, as if he's waiting it's the instant reply of, I believe a man who's in fellowship with God. Abraham, yeah? Here I am. Hinani. Hinani in the Hebrew is a cool word. Hinani. It's a great word to use when God calls you. Rick, here I am. Hey, Rick, ready? Hey, Rick, yeah, Lord. You know, just, just waiting for God to call, anticipating God's gonna call, looking forward to what God's gonna say when he calls, or we have the other alternative, and that is to, uh, in a minute. Hey, Rick, just a sec. Hey, Rick, oh, he's not calling me, is he? Rick, here I am, Hen and I, 
Hinnani. Bruce Waltke says the emphatic participle, Hinnani, is the only word Abraham utters to God in this entire chapter. Verse one and verse 11, he'll do it again. Abraham, here I am. Although Abraham has not always been faithful, Waltke says, the repetition shows that in this climactic test of his faith, he is attentive and receptive to God's word. Abraham's ready to go. How quickly do you respond when God calls? How attentive, how receptive are we when God speaks or to God's word? Hen and knee, here I am. It's, by the way, it's a prophet's response. We see this through scripture. Abraham's the first one to respond this way. Here I am, followed by Jacob. Here I am, Moses. Here I am, Samuel. Here I am, Isaiah. Here I am, even Ananias of Damascus. Acts chapter nine, verse 10. Ananias, here I am. I want you to go to Straight Street to a man named Saul. Say, what? (laughs) Here I am. You know what's best of all? Best of all is the Lord promises this kind of attentive, receptive response when we call him. Isaiah chapter 58 I'm gonna go back and start in verse six so you get some running context here. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house and when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, Hinnani, here I am. Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing finger, speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. You will cry, he will say, here I am when you love. When we love like him. When we release the oppressed. When we cover the naked. When we care for the poor and the hungry, when we stop pointing the finger at one another, when we love, when we act in the character of God, then when we cry out, he responds, here I am, here I am. The ifs reveal such an amazing truth that a love like his is what attracts his attentiveness and his receptivity to you and to me. And Abraham is there. Abraham is there at this passage. He is about to love God in a way that defines the word love for the very first time in the Bible. Back in chapter 22, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. You Bible students know this is the first time we see the word love in the Bible. This is it, ahavta. By the way, the first time we see the Hebrew word love, the word is normally ahav, but it's ahavta because ahavta is the verb form. So the first time you see the word love in the Bible, it's a verb. It's an action word. 
It's something that is done. It's something that you see. It's something obvious and visible. Abraham, take your only son, whom you ahavta, whom you love, and the Hebrew equivalent here is agape. It's the ultimate expression of love. The first time we see love expressed in the Bible, it is in the love of a father for his only son. Now, I can tell you truly, I love my wife more than I love my children, and I adore my children. <laughs> Naomi, you kill me, daughter. She's behind Josiah over here. I didn't even see her until I said, I love my wife more than my children. I see her head go. <laughs> wow. As much as I adore my daughter, I love my wife a little more. So you could say, well, wait, wait a minute, Rick. So, so, so you're saying that the love of a father for his only son, this is the consummate picture of love in the Bible. Yeah, because it's the ultimate expression implying the love of the father for the son. And that's the ultimate love. The love of God for Jesus is the purest, greatest, most powerful love that could possibly exist and what's remarkable is that he offers that to his children. I've told my children many times over the years, you want me to love mom more because the more I love mom, the more I will love you. The more I care for her, the more important you will be to me. That's how it works. And that's the agape that we're talking about, the love of the father for the son. And so we hear, here we see, take your only son, father, whom you love, Abraham for Isaac in a portrayal. By the way, the second time we will hear the word love in the Bible is in the expression of the love of the son Isaac for his bride, Rebecca. The first two pictures of love, the father for the son and the son for the bride. That is the love of God coming out in these pages. Genesis 24, 67 tells us Isaac took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So the father loves the son and the son loves the bride and I think I just spilled some profound prophecy all over the place. Now listen again to God's description as he says, take your son. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Why the incremental increase? Why not just say, get Isaac and go to Moriah? Why does God say it this way? Rabbinical tradition hears it like this. Take your son. Abraham answers, which one? I have two. So God says, your only son. Abe answers, but each one of the two is the only one of his mother. So God says, whom you love? Abe answers, I love both. So God says, Isaac. <laughs> and the point is, God is emphasizing here uniqueness. There is only one Isaac. There's only one beloved son of the covenant. There's only one who could only be born by supernatural intervention. There's only one. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, the only beloved son of the covenant, the only one. It doesn't mean solitary, it means singular, unique. From the viewpoint of uniqueness, Isaac was the only son. 
Galatians 3.26, Paul says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and that's true, but there's only one begotten son, one only begotten son, Jesus. There will only ever be one Jesus, though we are all sons and daughters of the living God. And we are all called into fellowship, even to the extreme point that the Hebrew pastor tells us that Jesus calls us his brethren. What? And yet he's the only son because there is no one like him. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Do you know where we find the first use of the word love in the New Testament? Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, Luke 3.22 all describe the baptism of Jesus as the Father speaks from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. That's the first time you hear the word love in the New Testament. By the way, you also hear this in John's gospel, not at the baptism of Jesus, but in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How much more clear can he be? As God so loves the son, his only beloved son, God so loves the world. He extends that depth of love, that profound love to you and to me. And the shocking parallel here begins to unfold before us as he says, take now your only son, your whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Go to the land of Moriah, go to, the Lord says, lech lecha in the Hebrew, and it is a phrase that's only used two times in the entire Old Testament. Lech lecha, go to Mount Moriah to offer your son. Where's the other time it's used? Genesis chapter 12, verse one, when God says to Abram, go forth from your country. He calls him to faith. Remember what I said as we began? Faith always begins in a moment. You get faith instantly, and then it takes a lifetime to develop and to grow, and that's Abraham. Instantly, lech lecha, and he does, kind of, stumbling, haltingly. He does leave Ur and goes a bit, stops in Haran, doesn't get into the promised land. 25 years it'll take him to get there. But God said, lech lecha, and so he went, go to, go forth. And now he says it again, same exact phrase, and it's only used again these two times, lech lecha, go to Moriah. Both goings required faith, but this going needed the faith built over a lifetime. Moriah, the land of Moriah, we would say Moriah. Moriah means Chosen of God, chosen of Yah, of Yahweh, or foreseen of Yahweh. It had to be Moriah. It is indeed God's chosen ridge. If you've never seen it, you almost would miss it. Today in Jerusalem, because of the way Jerusalem is all built up, you walk the streets of Jerusalem and you got the ups and the downs and the all-arounds, but, but you realize, wait a minute, we're on, we're on Moriah, it's, it's not like this, it's not Rainier, it's not Baker, it's a ridge. 
that runs right up the middle of Jerusalem today. And it, at that time, spread north of the original beginnings of Jerusalem, would, would have been to the south, city of David as we call it, and then Moriah goes up as a ridge to the north of it. And it's so significant that it would happen here, that it's Moriah that is the chosen of Yahweh, because it is the chosen of Yahweh, Moriah, 2 Chronicles 6, verse 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. It's the only city on earth that God says, that's my city, that's my capital. I put my name there. I've told you all before, what's interesting to me is if you have an aerial shot of Jerusalem and the topography, you have, you have Zion, you have Moriah, and you have the Mount of Olives, and you have these two valleys that go up in between, and when you look at it, it looks kind of like, well, like three ridges coming together in one place at the bottom. It looks like the letter Shem in the Hebrew, which is the letter that the Jewish people use of God. Hashem, the name Shem, and I mean, it's it's. One of those really cool kind of stunning things. I'll put my name there, God says, Hashem, the name, right there in the topography of Jerusalem. But he chose this place. Why? That would be Jerusalem. That would be the capital. You know what would be built there? The temple on Moriah. And ultimately, first temple destroyed, second temple would be built, Herod would come up, he'd build up what we now today call, look at as the Temple Mount. Second temple would be built there on Moriah, chosen of Yahweh. We know on that same ridge of Moriah that another place was named Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of the sacrificed son. This is a big deal. This is not, you know, that undermines it. This is a huge deal. This is overwhelming. It's not just, hey, Abe, are you willing to let go of that which you love the most? Hey, Abe, prove to me that you love me by killing your son. Listen, get this. What the Lord is asking of Abraham here is do you trust me to keep my word? Do you really trust me to keep my covenant even if my covenant looks dead? Will you have faith in me to the very point of the impossible by killing the child of whom I said, Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Think about the conundrum for Abraham. Through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Hey, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, up to Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. Wouldn't you at least say, hey, hang on, Lord, wait, let me just remind you, let's go back to Genesis 21, Father, and reread the covenant that you gave, and now you're telling me to do the very thing that would render the covenant impossible. Mm -hmm. God says, sacrifice the promise. It's all about trust without borders. It's trusting God with no limitations. It's saying, if it's you, if it's me, it's saying, even if all my hopes and beliefs and even the plans that I thought you gave me were to die, I trust that you can raise it up to life again. 
I trust that you're doing something here that is beyond my human perception, so I will follow. So I will do what you're asking me to do. Followers of Jesus, have you ever argued with God over what you assumed his will to be for your life? Have you ever said something like, this is not the way it was supposed to go? But Father, I thought that we were going to. Have you ever been so disappointed as we've talked about recently? Because all the plans that you made, and you just know he rubber stamped them, all your plans are falling apart. Or worse than that, the very plans that you think he laid out for you. See, I was in that place more than once. But in ministry, I was in the place where I, I, I think I've told you all before, I was on a stepping ladder to ministry success. The first church I served at as a youth pastor, 300 people, because numbers mattered. Second church, 600 people, I'm on my way. This is the plan God has for me. Third church, 2,500 people. Yes, I'm getting there. Fourth church, 30 Fifth church, 20 in a living room. And I'll tell you what, by the fifth church, I had learned something. God's gonna do what he's gonna do. I'm probably better off if I just go along for the ride <laughs> instead of saying, but Lord, you said. Yes, he said. And he said, therefore, he will do. He's gonna make it happen. But Lord, how can you make it happen when you tell me this? Because this is, if I do this, that can't happen. Sure it can. Why, why not? He's God. Well, I couldn't make it happen. Exactly, you're you. We're human. Man, this just goes right back to the heart of all our disappointments when God asks us to sacrifice the very thing we think he's doing in our lives. But follow this through verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men, and with him Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And I read it quickly to help you see, to indicate he was ready to go. We don't see Abraham lollygagging around, arguing with God, trying to undermine what the Lord is asking him to do. We just see him doing it. He's up early in the morning. Why? The decision's made. God called, I go. God asks, I respond. This is faith in action, folks. He is determined now to do exactly as God has asked, and you will not see a single time in the chapter, you're not gonna see Abraham hedge the slightest. He did before, not now, after these things. This is a heart prepared. This is a faith that is ready to go, verse four. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. So about 60 miles, three days later, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said to him, here I am, my son, and he said, behold, the fire and the wood, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now, I don't know how Abraham said it. 
I don't know if he's, God will provide. God will provide. God will provide the lamb. God's got this. Or if it was, God will provide the lamb, son. Absolutely assured, not knowing how, not being able to explain what was about to take place, but he knew that God was going to provide one way or another, and so he just speaks this out. It is profoundly deep prophecy. By the way, this is part of why at the Jewish Passover to this day, the Passover meal is formatted around the questions of the children. Because here, Isaac is asking his father, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? God will provide the lamb. Four generations, a little more than that, would go by, and on the night of deliverance, a lamb was offered. On the night of deliverance, blood was painted on the doorpost and the lentil. On the night of deliverance, a meal was eaten, and Passover was instituted. But even then, it was still yet just another picture, as this one right here, of the night that the lamb would be offered. Read on, verse nine. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now we'll look at the parallels. Think about how this parallels Jesus, how precisely it does so. First off, back in verse two, the Lord says, offer him. Take your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to Mount Moriah and offer him, but the phrase in the Hebrew is literally lift him up. John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, even so the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Go take Isaac and lift him up. Jesus said the son of man must be lifted up. John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself, Jesus says again. And you know Jesus was lifted up as the cross then would be dropped into that post hole two to three feet deep. And he would be lifted up for all the world to see. Go lift him up, God says. Secondly, note this, it happens, verse four, on the third day. On the third day, which is the day of Jesus' resurrection, resurrection day. Now, you might say, well, that breaks down a little bit because if it's a picture of the sacrifice, that happened on the first day. The resurrection would be on the third day. But wait, listen. While Isaac was as good as dead to Abraham, spoiler alert, he averted death. He's not gonna die on this day. He will, on this day, on the third day, be to Abraham as good as resurrected. Because as Abraham took Isaac up the mount, up the ridge, he did so with the intention to kill him. With the certainty that that day Isaac would, Isaac must die. How do you know? Note the confidence, again, of Abraham. Verse five, he said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you I'm gonna go kill him, but we'll be back. (laughs) Now, there have been times where I've said to Cheryl, I'm taking him out behind the house, I'm gonna kill him, and I'll be back. (laughs) We'll be back, he says. And the Hebrew pastor, chapter 11, verse 17 of the book of Hebrews, writes, by faith, 
Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he of whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Well, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people, even from the dead, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. So the Holy Spirit gives us insight that at this time, as he says, we're gonna go worship and we'll be back, he intended to kill Isaac, but knowing that he was gonna kill Isaac, he also assumed that God was gonna immediately raise him from the dead because the covenant had to be fulfilled. He knew that God would not fail in his word. Would the sacrifice be difficult, painful, awful? Yes, but if hey, if Isaac's gonna pop right back up off the wood, cool. Wipe the blood off and we'll go back down. Not a problem. Note also in verse six that Abraham took the wood and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac carried the wood of his own offering. John 19, 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. Again, a place at the northern end of Mount Moriah. Number four, note this also in verse six. While Isaac carried the wood of his own sacrifice, Abraham carried the fire, biblical symbol of judgment, and a knife for the piercing of the flesh, Psalm twenty-two sixteen tells us they pierced my hands and my feet prophetically a thousand years ahead of time. Man, that still stuns me when I read that. Or 750 years beforehand, when Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah chapter 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. John 19, verse 34 says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately, immediately blood and water came out. So here comes Abraham, the father, with fire for judgment and a knife for the piercing. Listen, the Jews, they handed him over. The Romans hammered the nails and drove the spear. So Jew and Gentile alike killed Jesus. But the father the Father brought the fire and the knife. The Father brought the wrath. The Father had his intentions. Also in Isaiah chapter 53, verse four, we say, surely he himself, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And many, if not most, did as Jesus hung on the cross he wouldn't be there unless he deserved it. He wouldn't be tried, convicted, and executed on a whim. Maybe all that we heard about him, maybe it wasn't, maybe he truly is smitten of God. Well, Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. It's a strange verse. Pleased to sacrifice his, his son not pleased as in happy, pleased as in satisfied. And not the satisfaction of a restful, easy day, but the satisfaction of his wrath. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would offer himself, render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That was always the plan. 
that the Lord was pleased to see the plan fulfilled, his wrath was appeased, satisfied completely by Jesus on the cross because it was always going to be that way. It was always his intention. Moriah was always the place of his choosing, Revelation 13, verse eight, because Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The father was always going to offer the son because 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It had to be this way. It had to be this way for God to fully prove his love. And not only as the father, but as the son, God proved his love as well as Isaac. Hey, in the story, how old was Isaac? We can guess, we can only make educated guesses because the Bible doesn't give us the exact age, but I can tell you this, he was old enough to carry the, the wood himself. Old enough to recognize as they went up the ridge that they lacked an offering. His father calls him lad in verse five. I and the lad will go over and worship and will return to you. But that's the same word used for Ishmael in chapter 21, verse 12, when Ishmael was 17. It's the same word used of Joseph in Genesis 41, 12, when he's 30. It's the same word used of Benjamin in Genesis 43, verse 8, when he's 23. So the lad is a young man. As young as we see 17, as old as 30, and by the way, the very next thing to happen in chapter 23 is Sarah's death at the age of 127. And at that age, we know that Isaac would have been 37 years old. So you could say anywhere between the weaning of Isaac at the age of three, two or three, and 37, and yet lad is not normally applied to a kid, it's usually to a young man, so at least a teenager, if not in his 20s, I wouldn't be surprised if he was 33. Fit the picture, wouldn't it? Jewish rabbis land somewhere between 30 and 37. So I'll say 33, I like 33. Certainly, certainly Isaac was a grown man, so note this, Fifth thing to note, Isaac had to be bound willingly. <laughs> you got a man well over 100 and his young man's son, and he says, I'm gonna sacrifice you now. <laughs> Only if you catch me. What's <laughs> the matter, pops? <laughs> willingly. In other words, in this Amazing faith picture. Verse nine, they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac. How did he bind his son? I see Isaac just putting his hands out as his dad is binding him. The son is trusting the father. The son is believing the father somehow knows what he's doing. And Isaac went to the offering willingly just like Jesus they're in Gethsemane. You remember the scene? Peter grabs his sword, what he was doing with the sword. Nobody really knows. He didn't really know how to swing it. He only lopped off a servant's ear. That was the best he could do. Matthew 26, 53, Jesus stops him. He says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father 
And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Stop it, Peter. Put away your sword. This is the plan. I wonder if there was even a little frustration in Jesus' willing voice because he had told them the plan. We went over this. We talked about it up at Caesarea Philippi. We've been discussing it ever since. This was the plan. Put away your sword. John 18, 11, Jesus said to Peter, put it into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it willingly? So the Roman cohort and commander and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and, note this, bound him. They bound him. Even as Abraham would bind Isaac, a fully submitted Isaac, a willing Isaac, just as a fully submitted, bound Jesus went up to the altar of Calvary. That word bound is interesting. It's a, a Jewish word, akedah or akedah. And in Jewish thinking, this whole concept of the, uh, of the sacrifice of Isaac, they call it the binding, the akedah ishtak, the binding of Ishtak. Of Ishtak. The binding of Isaac is the Jewish phrase for this story. And it is a picture of a son willingly bound. Verse 10, so Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Hineni, here I am. He's just waiting. He's ready to respond. He's got the knife. Verse 12 this angel of the Lord said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now, I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, he says. Wouldn't God already know? Now I know that you love me. Wouldn't God already understand? Listen, this is knowing by experience. And the experience was not the experience of the Lord. It was the experience of Abraham. Now I know that you know that I know. <laughs> and Abraham truly knows that God knows. Abraham goes through it so that Abraham can know he trusts in the Lord, can hear that, that encouraging, confident statement of, of his father, now I know. You know? I know. I know too. We know. Abraham's faith has now journeyed to the place, listen, of impossible trust, of borderless belief. His own faith now proven to him beyond the shadow of a doubt. We sing about, in one of our songs, having a faith without borders. It sounds so good to sing until life gets rough, until the test comes and we're sitting there with the pencil looking at the questions going, I don't know if I can pass. Faith without borders, unless I'm facing such a difficult time. Many of you are, by the way. I know. God knows far better than me. Many of us are in a place of waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do what he said he was gonna do. Keep waiting. You'll pass. You're gonna get there. Whose voice stayed the knife of Abraham? It's the angel of the Lord. We call him Yeshua, Jesus. Wonder what it was like for Jesus to witness this passion play of his own crucifixion. 
for Jesus to be the one to say, hold it, hold it. Don't slam. Hold back the knife. Knowing that nobody was gonna stop the nails. Nobody was gonna stop the spear. Verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide Yahweh Yireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided, and this is the fourth and final altar that Abraham will build in the land. We call it the altar of provision because there God provided and the ram took the place of the sun. 2,000 years later, the sun is gonna take the place of the lamb because God did provide a lamb, just not yet. Abraham is prophetic. God will provide for himself a lamb. And in this scene, God provides a ram because this scene is not the fulfillment of that prophetic statement. The cross is. The cross fulfills what Abraham says. God will provide for himself in this place a lamb, and the lamb's name is Jesus. He will provide for himself. By the way, note that. Look back at verse eight. God will provide for himself. You could, if you'd like to, you don't have to, but you could take your pencil or pen and just line through the word for. Because in the Hebrew, the, the phrase is yire lo, that the Lord will provide for himself or literally provide himself. God will provide himself a lamb. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow. You heard me, Abraham. You obeyed me. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So we see this amazing, remarkable interaction between the angel of the Lord, Jesus, pre-incarnate, speaking to, talking with, dealing with Abraham. But, but Rick, it's, it's the Lord who provides. It's Yahweh. Isn't that God? Yes, we've been over this. God the Father, God the Son, both absolutely involved with Abraham in this remarkable moment. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Last question, where's Isaac? Where's Isaac? Abraham returned to the young men. What about his son? He said, I and the lad will go to worship and will return to you. But now in the text, in the scriptures, all we see is Abraham returning, not Isaac. Why? He disappears from the story completely and we will not see him again until he meets Rebecca, his bride. Which just gives me chills. Because God provided a lamb in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus who, like Isaac, 
rose from the dead. Oh, Isaac averted death, but he was a resurrected child. As far as Abraham was concerned, this son, he wasn't gonna have to go home and tell Sarah, you're not gonna believe what I did. <laughs> you know, there's even a tradition out there that says Sarah died because she learned of what Abraham was going to do. Probably a little shaky, but throw it out to you anyway. Where is Isaac? In chapter 22, we see the sacrifice. In chapter 23, Isaac disappears completely. In chapter 24, Abraham will send his old servant, Eliezer, whose name means God, my helper, my helper. Jesus says, I'm gonna send a helper to you. So Abraham sends his helper, and his helper goes and gets Isaac's bride. And then finally at the end of chapter 24, Isaac gets his bride. Jesus is coming for his bride. Right now, the helper is bringing his bride to him. Right now, the helper has found us. He is walking with us. He is bringing us to the point where the son will see us and we will be with him forever. May we be ready to meet the son of the offering when he comes. But when is that? <laughs> After these things. Meanwhile, brothers and sisters, here's the deal. We are learning to trust him. You had faith at some point, or maybe you haven't. Maybe you're sitting here for the first time this morning saying, I, don't, I haven't believed, but I think I do. Great, today's your day. You start with faith, you end with faith, and all along the way, God is developing and growing and training and nurturing through hard times, through good times, through successes, through failures. He's building your faith. He is right now. But he's coming. And the son will get his bride. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. This morning you have laid out once again the magnificent gospel plan. The whole picture of your deep love for the son and for the world that you would give your only begotten son, that he would be sacrificed on the mount of your choosing. Father, we believe in Jesus and it's why we're here this morning. And we believe that all will ultimately be set right exactly as you promised, that every promise will be fulfilled. You're not gonna miss a thing. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that right now, you would give us the faith to believe that every promise you spoke to us will be fulfilled, that you will see us through to the place that you have provided for us, the place that you right now, Lord Jesus, are preparing for us. You're gonna get us there. I just pray for a swelling of confidence for all of us before you this morning to recognize that no matter how long we may have waited for a promise in our lives, no matter how painful the current situation we're in may be, that you will follow through. Father, we're where we are because you know we can pass this test. May we pass it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. As you stand, I offer, God offers, Jesus offers to you the gospel which you've just heard this morning. He died on the cross for you, took all of your sin, the full wrath of God on himself so that you wouldn't ever have to bear it.
He rose on the third day, and now he extends to you the hope and the promise of eternal life, and all you need do is take the first step of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe he's the Son of God. You start there. And then you have the guarantee that he's gonna see you through to the very end so that at one point, I can imagine us all seeing Jesus and saying, oh, it is after these things. The time is now. So if you've never believed in Jesus, don't wait. Don't put off. Give your heart to him today. Would you pray one more time with me? And if you wanna receive Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning, I give you the opportunity to do it right now to simply bow before him and say to him, I believe that you are my Lord and my Savior. And I believe that you did go through the full sacrifice that you died on the cross that day. And I believe, Lord, that you rose from the dead. And I declare this right now because I want you, Lord, to be my Savior, to be king of my life, so I, I come in faith today, praying, fill me, walk with me, teach me, lead me, and bring me to your side. For those of you believers who are struggling with pain or hardship or difficulty or waiting, would you pray this with me? Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doubting you. I'm sorry for taking matters into my own hands. I'm sorry for all of my missteps. And I ask, Lord, that you will increase my faith to know that you've got me and to know you're gonna get me through. And for my part this morning, I just wanna say, praise the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name.